0: week we introduce the book of James. This week we're going to start right at the top of the book of James again. Let's talk a little bit about methodology because the methodology is going to have to change a little bit because of the way that the book of James is structured. I've had this conversation with Micah a few times that the way that I construct sermons is that I look at the passage we're going to be talking about this week, and read and read and read and read it until I think I understand what the center of it is, what the central message is, what the point of the passage is. Paul is very good at constructing arguments. And the arguments are designed to lead somewhere. And I want to see where it's leading. And then I back away from that central point, so that we can start in kind of a neutral place, get all your minds in the same place, and then I try to lead you to that central point so that you understand Paul's argument. Okay, none of that works with the book of James because the book of James, as we said last week, is more like the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's just a series of short, rather concise statements full of imperatives And the topic changes every couple of verses. And so it's almost impossible to say, all right, the central theme of James 1 is, it's very difficult to do. Now, I have read outlines galore of the book of James, where they have attempted to give central themes to each chapter. But then they end up with such broad-based themes that it's not really even the central theme. James 1 is about uh, behave better, you know. It's like, oh, gee, that doesn't help at all. And so the way that we're going to approach the book of James, I've decided, since there are controversies in the book of James where James does seem to say different things than Paul says, as we talked about last week, but knowing that they're writing to two different audiences, and that they're writing during different spaces of time to different people who have different histories and backgrounds and traditions. We're going to look at those apparent conflicts, and we're going to see that they don't really conflict as long as we understand who the separate audiences are. But the only way to really look at the book of James, then, is to see, idea by idea, what do the other biblical writers say about this same topic. So we're going to kind of go topic by topic, which will only allow us to do two or three verses at a time, and hopefully we'll get a few verses this morning. But we're going to look at what Paul says about what James wrote, and we're going to see what Peter says, and we're going to see examples from the Old Testament so that we can find out whether James is saying something that is thematic To all Judeo-Christianity, or is he saying things that are unique to the New Testament, and especially New Testament Jews who are transitioning out of the law, or is he saying things that only apply to that group but don't apply to the other group? And depending on what we read, depending on which statement we read, what passage we read, it's going to fall into one of those several different categories. This morning, we're going to see that the first thing James says, universally across the board, Old and New Testament, everybody agrees with it. Except that it's also completely contrary to how modern Christianity thinks. Modern Christianity has a tendency to say that if you just do things God's way, if you just follow God's word, if you just follow God's commands, that that just everything's going to go well for you, and you're going to get healthier, and you're going to get money, and you're magically going to have a bigger house, and you're going to get a bigger car, and yet throughout the Bible, we see a constant amount of suffering, and the suffering needs to be treated one of two ways. You either say the suffering that humanity goes through is completely arbitrary, has no purpose, and that we're just suffering because we have no power against viruses or we have no power against sin and the devil or we have no power to to stop it, but it has no purpose. It, It has no real reason for happening. That's one way that people approach it. If you believe that God is all about health, wealth, prosperity... If you believe that everything about God is about you getting better and stronger, richer, that you're going to run faster and jump higher, and that your kids are going to be prettier than the other kids, and that it's going to be... If you think that's what God is doing for you, then when suffering comes, you think of it as an aberration. You think of it as somehow the devil broke into my stronghold. And I need to build up my faith again so that I can reconstruct the walls of my stronghold so I can keep the devil out. Because that time when he got in, that was an aberration. That's one way that people think about it. It's a very common way that people think about it. They think that suffering is anti-God. The Bible says over and over and over again that everything that happens in God's universe happens for a purpose. Absolutely everything. And that he's got his hand on everything. And that he has designed everything. And that he knows what he's doing all the time. And there are no mistakes. There are no aberrations. There is no plan B. There is only a righteous, holy, sovereign God doing exactly what he wants to do all the time. And if you know that, then you know that the suffering, the trials, the things you go through have purpose. Now, because we're human beings, we start trying to figure out what the purpose is, which is why we so frequently run to God and yell, Why? Why is this happening? Well, for... His own reasons and his own purposes, he doesn't feel any compunction to explain everything to us. Instead, what he says is, Trust me. Just have faith in me. My grace is sufficient. I know what I'm doing. Trust me while I do it. But we so easily want to control our own destinies. We so easily want to say, Oh, I know why this is happening. Because if we can figure out the whys, it comforts us. If we know why it's happening, oh, okay, this is happening because five years ago I did something I shouldn't have done and now this is some kind of cosmic retribution and now this is happening to me because of what I do. Oh, okay, now I know why. Now I feel better about it because now I know why. The answer to why is because our God is on his throne, and he does whatever he pleases. That's why. So James is going to start his letter by saying, count it all joy when you go through various trials. And he says, it has a purpose, the testing, the trying of your faith. It has a purpose. It's building you up. It has a purpose. And the purpose is to cause you to lean completely on God, and not to your own understanding, and not to your own comprehension, and not to your own ability, but to lean on God 100% in all circumstances, no matter what. Look, you know, you know for a fact that if your life was nothing but easy street all the time, easy peasy no matter what you do, I got that from Megan, easy peasy. If constantly everything went your way, everything you touched turned into a handful of aces, Everything you t- money's just coming your way, healthy your whole life, you're never going to reach the point where you genuinely think you need God. Because even when we just get okay, when we just get healthy and the bills are paid and the children are fine, we start thinking self-made man. There it is. I did this. You know why I'm doing okay and they're not? Because I worked harder. I put in the effort. I sacrificed sleep. I tore down my body. I just did what they weren't willing to do. If they were willing to do it like me, then they'd have everything I have. And that's just when we're okay. If we were fine our whole lives, we would not seek God. If we didn't understand our own frailty, if we didn't understand our own sinfulness, our own mortality, then we would never see the necessity of a Savior. We wouldn't even understand what the word Savior meant. Because we'd think, saved from what? My life's great. I don't want to be saved. Hey, the rapture might happen. We might all go home and be in heaven. People who are doing great in this life say, no, no, I don't want that. But I'll tell you, with each trial, with each successive difficulty that I've gone through in this life, it has made the dream of going home that much sweeter. That, that should have been a bigger amen. You
1: shook my head really big. <laughs> you shook your head real big?
0: <laughs> So, all right, so that's the approach. We're going to take portions and then we're going to see what else we can find in the Bible that corresponds. So that we can see the similarities, so that we can see the differences, and so that ultimately we can understand where James is coming from. Thus ends the introduction. James 1.1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Okay, there's his opening. Now, I got an email this week from somebody who said, you know, James's real name, if you look at it in the Greek, is this word right here, Jacobus. That's the actual name in the Greek language for this book. This is the Old Testament English letters of the Hebrew name Jacob, which is translated Jacob all the way through the Bible. So if you know that Yaqab is Jacob, and then you come across the name Yaqabos, how are you going to translate that? Well, you would think it would be translated Jacob, and the derivation of the word James of the name James, my name my son's name, comes from Jacob, which means my son and I are a couple of heel catchers. (laughs) (laughs) And so far, I'm living up to that. So I started doing a little research. Yeah, why is that? Why why is it called that? Now, there is an an internet-based meme-ish kind of story going around that is even preached from many pulpits. I found two different sermons on sermon audio in the last couple of weeks that both made this claim, which is why I got interested when the question came up. The claim was that because King James paid for the English edition, he wanted his name somewhere in the Bible, and so the translators, rather than rightly translate Jacob, changed it to James to satisfy the ego of King James. Sounds good, doesn't it? Makes you go, yeah, that could happen. Yeah, I'm going to call some King James only this afternoon. <laughs> Say, what exactly are you all up to? <laughs> yeah. Truth is, I went back just yesterday and found a reprint of the 1599 Geneva Bible. And you know how they translated Jacob? Jacob? James. Which means that it wasn't King James who made them do it. So that got me into name derivation. What hap- Well, the simple explanation is, now that I've got you all interested in this topic, <laughs> the simple derivation of the name is then it moved from the Greek language, Jacobos, from there into the Latin language, from there into the French language, G-E-M-M-E-S was the French, pronounced James, and from there into the English language. And the I and the J cross and have that same J sound as it migrates through language. And so the proper from the French to the English derivation of the name would be James because the English letters were just added to get the same sound as the French name, James, G-E-M-M-E-S, which came from the Latin language, which came from the Greek language. So it turns out, I told you all that to say, it turns out there's no grand conspiracy theory. (laughs) It would have been so fun to say, well, we've got something here. But it turns out that that's just the way that language worked. However, in the New Testament, the New Testament translators, starting all the way back to the earliest English translations, wanted to create a division or a distinction between the brother of Jesus, that James, or the son of Alphaeus, or the son of uh, Zebedee, And so they translated it James all the way across. But whenever there is a reference to the Old Testament forefather of Israel, they decided to translate the same word, Jacob, so that when we'd hear Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it would ring in our ears as something that we understand. Those are the forefathers. Those are the progenitors of Israel. Because it would be odd for it to be Abraham, Isaac, and James. So they made the decision that it would be James when we're talking about the book of James or any of the New Testament characters and that it would be Jacob when it was an Old Testament character so that we would understand the difference. There, did I answer that question? One person asked that on the internet and now you all had to sit through that entire explanation. (laughs) Starting at verse 2. Oh, come on, you thought it was interesting. Yes, yes. Karen's totally with me.
1: So, Jesus' brother's name
0: was Jacob? Yeah. Yeah, Jacob. Just like Jesus' name was Yeshua. Right. Okay. right? And his Greek name was Iesous. It just migrated into the English language as Jesus. So, same thing happened. And in fact, Iesous starts with that same I that became a J into the English letter, so we pronounce it Jesus. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's start at verse 2. Let's dig in. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. Then verse 5, totally different topic. He now is going to launch into something. Else. So we're going to talk about these three verses first. First, we have to define some words to really get at what James is saying. When he says the testing of your faith is the reason that you're encountering these various trials, when he says testing, he doesn't mean it like let's test it to see if you pass or fail. He means Try it. Find out what it's made of. Now, this idea, this concept, goes all the way back in the Old Testament. In fact, those of you who know the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel, once David comes upon his brothers, and he sees the uncircumcised Philistine, and he says, isn't there a cause? Well, then they bring him to King Saul, and he says to King Saul that, He's willing to go out and fight because he fought a lion. He fought a bear. God delivered those into my hands. God's going to deliver him into my hands. So the next thing Saul does, which is completely logical, is outfit him with his own armor. And they put the armor on David. They put a brass helmet on him. They give him a sword. They give him a shield. And he ends up saying, I haven't tested this. What he means by that is, I haven't gone into battle with this on. It's bulky on me. I haven't ever fought with this. I don't know how this works. And he ends up taking it off. He gets his sling and his five smooth stones, and you know the rest of the story. So that idea of trying, of testing, moved into the New Testament so that we can understand that God is not testing you for the purpose of making you fail. And James is going to return to that topic in a little while. I think while he's writing things down, he thought, oh, I should clarify what I said back here at the beginning of my letter. And he's going to say, don't let anybody, when they're tempted, don't let them say that God is tempting them for the purpose of making them fall. Because that's not the way God works. But he will test you, he will try you in order to improve your mettle, in order to build you up. It's the same thing that Peter gets at. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1 right at the beginning of the book. Keep your finger there in James. Or don't. I don't care what you do. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is going to say something very similar and it's going to expand on the concept. Because if you begin with the idea that all trials, all struggles, all suffering in this life has purpose because it's under the hand of an absolutely sovereign God who is doing whatever he is pleased to do. If you know that, then when the trials and the tests come, they have purpose. That's what Peter gets at. And that's also what James is saying, that these trials come for the purpose of testing and trying your faith so that it will build into you a perseverance, a patience. And then he says, so let it have its perfect work. That's the reason you can rejoice. That's the reason you can be in your trials and have a peace that passes understanding. That's the reason that you can be in the midst of horrific things and still worship God, still praise God for who he is and what he's doing because all things do work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. So the Bible keeps saying this and saying this. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed By various trials. Peter, by the way, is writing to essentially the same group that James wrote to. Peter tells us right at the beginning that he is writing to those who were scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. But he refers to them as the scattered, as the diaspora, the exact same group that James is writing to. And so Peter wants to assure them in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their torments, while they're being scattered, while they're being persecuted, he wants to assure them that there's purpose for what's happening to them. So he says, If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, Even though your faith is tested or tried in the fire, that faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's the purpose for the testing. That's the purpose for the trial is to build up your faith, your confidence that God knows what he's doing. So that when Christ appears, you're able to worship and to praise and to glorify him Because that is your complete deliverance from the trials and the tests you're undergoing. But if you hadn't had the tests and the trials, you wouldn't have that faith. You wouldn't be looking forward to the Savior coming back and he would not be glorified in the process. So God, who is a whole lot smarter than you and me, knows that in order for his son to get all the glory, all the honor, all the praise, and the worship, knows that he has to take you through the trials and the tests, so that you will look to him in faith, so that you anticipate the return of Christ, so that when Christ appears, he gets all the glory and the honor that God designed for him since before the foundation of the world. Make sense? Yes. And it's, it's tough for us to think that way. I get it. It's hard. But right in the midst of your trials, right in the midst of your difficulties, it gets easier if you know that God is putting you through this for his reasons and his purpose. And the more that you long for Christ and the more that you long to go home, that's exactly why he's doing it. He's producing that in you and you're looking to him for your deliverance, and you're looking to him in all your faith, and you have no confidence in yourself or your own weakness or your own incapability, you're looking fully to him. That's his design. That's why he's doing it. So the next time you're in the midst of a big struggle, a big struggle, the next time you're in the midst of gangs and gangs of physical trials and problems and everything else, realize that you are right in the middle Of the great cosmic design of God that He has purposed for your life on purpose in order to get you from your self sufficiency to your need, worship, and praise of Christ and your ultimate home going. He's doing that on purpose. I don't like that between James and Peter, they didn't say, Well, now that you know this, I'll reduce the pain. It would be great if he said that. Once you get the lesson, we're going to dial down the pain a little bit. (laughs) He didn't say that. He says the pain has purpose. The trials have purpose. Because we have to learn it over and over again. Because we have to learn it over and over again. Because we're all just as pig-headed as I am. Right? Because as soon as we get well, as soon as we get healthy, we do exactly what Israel did in the Old Testament. We go back to ourselves. Soon as we're fat and happy, we're like, it's all good. I don't need God. I'm good. You were nodding way too vociferously. (laughs) Okay. so Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Do you see the big plan of God there? You can rejoice. You can rejoice in the midst of your trials. Because the same way that a metallurgist will tell you they refine gold, the way that they refine gold is that they heat it. And then the dross drops out or rises. One or the other, which way does it go? (laughs) It rises, ah, and then the dross rises. I say this authoritatively now on the the two or three witnesses I got right here. And then you scoop off the dross, and what you're left with is the pure gold. Well, Peter's picking up that very concept and saying, God is refining your faith. God is making it like pure gold. And he does that with fire. He does that by heating up your circumstances. And then all that stuff that doesn't matter, all that dross, all that debris that you've picked up through modern religion and modern church or traditions that you've grown up with, all that stuff rises up and is done with. And what you're left with is pure faith. And he says the result of your pure faith is the salvation of your soul. So God is refining you for the purpose Of saving you the design is all his the design was designed before the foundation of the world your name was written down in the Lamb's Book of Life and from that point forward he's going to do whatever it takes to get you all the way safely home good plan plan. except that next time we're hurting we're gonna go bad plan bad plan I don't like this plan Alternate plan. But it's a good plan. I've asked this frequently. How many of you have ever learned anything really, really important when you were comfortable? Nobody. No hands went up. How many of you have learned really important things when you were in pain? You learn. That's how you learn. Whether it's your parents deciding to... uh, correct your backside for you. That little bit of tribulum, you shape right up. In fact, that's Hebrews 12. Turn there. Okay, so the writer of Hebrews is of what nationality? And he's writing to whom? Okay, now we've narrowed down the crowd. He's writing to the same crowd. James, Peter, Peter the writer of Hebrews, all writing to the same crowd, scattered Israelites, scattered Jews, who are under tribulation, under trial, and so far they're all saying the same thing. Hebrews 12, starting at verse 5. Verse 4, of course, is one of my favorite verses that says you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Here's the exhortation. It says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. That is an Old Testament quote that is already showing that God disciplines and that God reproves people. It's not the devil. It's not an aberration. It's not a mistake. You didn't trip and fall into it. You didn't slip and slide your way into it. God did it on purpose because God reproves, God corrects, and God is the one who disciplines us for his purposes. So do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he gives stuff. And he heaps plenty on every son whom he receives. No, that's not it. it. (laughs) Those whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That's a hard one. Because that's the word for scourge. That's the word for spanks, corrects. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Okay, now this can be a tough one for you in particular. (laughs) whom the lord loves he disciplines why because the reality is if we are not disciplined we don't learn and we know that with our children while they're little when they're little tiny babies they can pretty much get away with anything and then they reach that age where we realize we're gonna have a brat on our hands If we don't start doling out some discipline, don't you point at him. (laughs) If we don't dole out some discipline, isn't it fun coming to church? (laughs) Isn't this fun? Yeah. If we don't discipline our children, our children will follow their natural sinful proclivities. And they will rebel on us, or rebel on us, or rebel on us, and become brats, end up in jail, and ultimately go to hell. So in our effort to deliver them from hell and deliver them from the cops, we discipline them and teach them that when we say no, the answer is no. And if we allow something, that's up to us so that they can get the concept of the big generalized other and they can realize that there are opinions other than their own opinions and that those opinions can be imposed on their lives, mostly because we're bigger than them. And then my son became bigger than me. And now his will is imposed on my life. Anyway. (laughs) My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. That means essentially not faint like swooning. It means don't draw back. Don't faint away. When God disciplines you, don't go, well, if that's the way you're going to act, I'm not going to have you as my God anymore. I have no more confidence. I have no more faith in you. And so you faint away. But don't faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Every son whom he receives. Every child for you ladies, he receives. I saw some of you think, oh, that's good. He put that in the male gender, so I'm off scot-free here. If God loves you, he's going to produce faith in you in order to save your soul. Therefore, he is going to take you through the necessary discipline so that you understand that he's in charge and you're not, so that you become dependent on him, so that you are ultimately saved. He knows what he's doing. It is for discipline that you endure. That's why you put up with it and don't faint away. Because this discipline is God dealing with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father did not discipline? I disciplined my son. And it wasn't because I hated my son. If I hated my son, I would have let him continue down his sinful path and and going hog wild. I disciplined him because I love him. I used to say to him, I don't want to do this. I don't want to correct you. I don't want to, for this few minutes, be somebody you're running from. I want you to just love your dad, and I want to love you. But now I have to discipline you because I love you. Same thing. God loves you so much that he won't leave you to yourself. He won't leave you to your own ways, but he will bring you under discipline. For it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you're reading the King James there, it's bastard. He used that word on purpose to say... You're a child born out of wedlock. You're not actually a child of God if you have lived your whole Christian life without discipline. If you've never been disciplined by God, you're kidding yourself if you think you're in God's good graces. So he says, since this discipline is universal and everybody gets some, if you don't ever encounter the discipline of God, it's because God... Doesn't treat you as a son because you are an illegitimate child. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. Oh, 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 yes, we did. <laughs> and we respected them. Yes, we did. So shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? My dad had a trick he could do when, when my mom would say, oh, good, you're home. Beat your children. Um, my dad had this trick he would do where he would just undo his belt. And you could hear that noise, that leather belt coming off noise, that shh, It was like unsheathing a sword. I mean, you could hear it. You could, and, oh, all five of us would scatter five different ways. Under the theory, he can't catch us all. <laughs> And we would just scatter from that discipline. But I'll tell you what, there's no man on the planet I love more than that man. I miss him every day because he raised me up to be the person I am. And he did it through love and discipline. And so the writer of Hebrews picks that up and says, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us. And we end up respecting them for it. How much more than ought we respect God, love God, worship God, thank God for the fact that he takes the time to discipline us. Look, I assume that God is really, really busy. He's keeping the atoms going. He's keeping the universes going. He's keeping the stars spinning. He's keeping planets from crashing into each other. He's in charge of every bird that falls from the sky and every lot that cast into the lap. He's in charge of every big thing, all the people who are dying every day, all the people that are being born every day, all the people who need to eat every day. All the, he's busy. He's so busy. There's so much going on in the universe of God. He's very, very busy. That's all I'm getting at. And yet he took time to spend time on me, to correct me. And he could have left me. He's got enough to do. But he took the time to correct me, to draw me, to produce faith so that my soul is ultimately saved. How much should I respect him for the discipline he's taken me through? You get it? All right, so the writer of Hebrews goes on and says, verse 11, no, verse 10, those fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our own good. In other words, he's saying your dad used to spank you just so you'd be quiet for his good. God doesn't discipline that way. He's not disciplining for his good. It doesn't improve him. It doesn't make him any holier. It doesn't make him any better. His throne doesn't rise a few inches. Nothing is improved in God when he disciplines us. He disciplines us for our good. They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. Now, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, notice that, to those who have been trained by the discipline, to those people, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Okay, God knows what he's doing. He's producing righteousness in his people. He's producing faith in his people. And he's using discipline as the means to do it. And he knows what he's doing. Turn to Romans 1. No, turn to Romans 5. So far, we have looked at 1 Peter. We have looked at Hebrews. We have looked at James. And all of them were writing to the same essential audience. And so it's not surprising that they would have the same take on the trials and the tribulations that the diaspora, that the scattered believing Jews were going through. But now Paul's going to pick it up and import it into his letter to Gentiles in Rome, Jews and Gentiles in Rome. But to a Gentile audience now, he's going to say the same essential thing, which means this is a principle that is universal across the board. doesn't matter if you're Jew. doesn't matter if you're Gentile. What matters is God, who loves people, disciplines those people for the purpose of building up their faith so that those people end up right where he predestined they would be. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I think we can say, once we read through Romans 5 here and see what Paul has said about it, I think we can safely say This is a universal Judeo-Christian rule. This is how God is. This is how God acts. Have you ever known somebody for so long, been with somebody for so long, that when they do things that would be otherwise embarrassing, you just say, "Ah, that's what he's like. That's how he is. It's just what he does. There was way too many people (laughs) grinning, some rather sheepishly because you all thought of somebody right now and you thought of what it is they do that you would rather they don't but you go ah it's the way they are it's just how they are okay this is just how god is this is what he's like across the board this is how he deals with those that he loves and if you know that then when you're in the midst of the trial and the discipline You can have all joy because you know that he is disciplining you for his purposes, for his glory, and for your ultimate good. So now we'll let Paul say it. Starting in Romans 5, verse 1. Paul starts right out with an indicative, which I find really interesting. He's going to say the same thing. James puts it in the imperative sense, but Paul starts with an indicative. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Okay, that's who we are. We are already justified in the courts of heaven on the basis of faith. Now, where did we get the faith? That's what we've been talking about for almost an hour now. Where did we get that faith that justifies Through the discipline, through the training, through God building us up, through putting us through the fire. So the dross rises up and the pure golden faith remains. That faith then is exchanged for righteousness. In the economy of heaven, starting all the way back at Abraham, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. And then Paul picks that up in Galatians, carries it forward, and says that's still the same way that we get faith. We get faith because God takes us through the trials, takes us through the difficulties and disciplines. In that process, our faith is built up. And then when we get to heaven, our faith in God is exchanged or counted as righteousness. We're not personally righteous, we're not personally holy. But the righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account on the basis of our faith. And even the faith is a gift from God that he built into us and then tried in the fire in order to perfect it, in order to complete it, and then brings us to heaven and uses that very faith that he put in us to exchange it for righteousness so that we can live in his presence forever. It's God, 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 God. That's all I'm I'm driving at here. It's all God. He's doing it all. So Paul can start with, You've already been justified. And having been justified by your faith, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason we have peace with God is because we have faith in God and we've been justified by God and the faith is a gift from God and it's God who disciplined us and trained us and chose us and elected us, sent his son to die for us, and will ultimately bring us all the way safely home because that's what he decided to do before the foundation of the world. God, 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 then God, some more God, God did it. And what did you do? Yeah, you're the recipient. God in his grace does all of that. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So it is through the Lord Jesus Christ, it is through him that we have obtained grace. And our introduction into that grace is because of the faith that God has built into us. And so as God disciplines us, brings us along in the faith, that brings us along to the grace of God, whereby we're justified, whereby we're saved, and it's all done through Jesus Christ. And therefore, we exult in hope of the glory of God. How can you not be hopeful after all that? You should walk out of here this morning, the most hopeful people in Smyrna. You should walk out of here knowing, wow, Wow, God did all that. And he did all that for me. And he's disciplining me and he's training me and he's bringing me along in faith. And he's given me this abundance of grace. And I trust him because he chose me and implanted that faith in me. He's training me up in that faith so that my soul will ultimately be saved. Yeah, we should have hope. By the way, that... Word hope, I have to point it out frequently. That is the Greek word elpis. It's not our word like, oh, my fingers are crossed. I hope it happens. On Christmas morning, I hope I get a bike. On Christmas morning, I do not hope I get a bike. Okay, get that out of your heads (laughs) immediately. But it's not that kind of hope. Elpis, the P-I-S, is the same root as faith, pistis. And what it means is a confident looking forward to what you know is coming. We know that Christ is coming back. We know we're going to live in glory. We know we're going to see the glory of God. And therefore we hope, we look forward to what we know is still coming. And we anticipate it. And we exalt in that hope of the glory of God. And not only that. Not only do we exalt in the faith and the grace and the justification, but not only that, but we also exalt in our tribulations. See that? Now, I can understand exalting in hope. I get it. Faith, I've tried, I've labored, I've tried to explain how grand it is that God would give us that faith and then build up that faith in us to exchange for righteousness so that we're ultimately justified because of everything God did. I get it. Hope. Lots of hope. Chosen before the foundation of the world. Elected by God. Hope. Death of Christ. Ultimately redeeming us. Perfect Savior. I got it. Hope. I'm exalting in all of that. I'm looking forward to all of that. I celebrate all of that. That's where my hope and exaltation is. All of that. And then Paul says, exalt in your tribulations. Now, you can't do that if you don't know that your tribulations have purpose. If your tribulations are purposeless, you cannot exalt in them. Because you're going to go, what's this about? Why am I going through this? That if you know the purpose, if you understand what God is doing, you can exalt in your tribulations because that's proof positive that you are a child of God. And he's training you and instructing you because he loves you. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Okay, perseverance, patience, the willingness to get through it, the willingness to endure it to just go through it because God is with me, God knows what he's doing. There's a quote that's often attributed to John Calvin where when he was on his deathbed, he had these horrible headaches. He said, God is crushing me, but I take comfort in the knowledge that it's God that's crushing me. Okay, that's the attitude I'm talking about. Because the trials and the tribulations you go through produce in you a triedness, a perseverance. Verse 4, and that perseverance creates proven character. That perseverance creates in you that confidence toward God and that ability to endure without your faith fainting back. And that proven character produces hope. Hope that you're going to get through it. Hope that you're going to endure it. Hope that you're going to come out the other end. Hope that one of two things is going to happen. I'm either going to get better or I'm going to die and go home. Either one is fine with me. But it's going to happen. And that hope that is produced in you through all that, the King James says, maketh not ashamed. The NASB says, hope does not disappoint Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay, that's all purpose, purpose, purpose. This is why these things are happening. This all has reason. It's all part of God's economy. Go back to the book of James. Now we can understand, I think, in the big picture, James saying, "...consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials." Knowing that this testing, this trying of your faith produces endurance. That's the same thing Paul said. It produces patience. It produces perseverance. It produces the ability to get through it. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So what do you do? Let that endurance have its perfect result. What is the perfect result of the endurance? Faith. You end up having faith. You end up knowing that God's with you. You end up giving up on yourself. You end up taking sides with God against yourself. You end up saying, God is going to have to get me through this or I'm not getting through this. God is all my hope. God is my salvation. God is my redemption. And you're only going to learn that through persevering through the trials. So let that testing of your faith and that endurance have its perfect result so that you can be complete, so that you can be filled up, so that you can be lacking nothing. That's the purpose for the trials. Get it? Because yes. Yes. I feel like I've used a whole lot of words this morning to say something I can say real simply, which is God knows what he's doing, and he's in charge And he's bigger than you. And even if you don't like the way he's doing it, he's going to do it anyway. And so the right approach is to recognize and glorify and worship him in the midst of it, whatever it is, whatever comes your way. Thank him for the good days. Thank him for good health. Thank him for every meal that you get to stick into your face. Thank him for every day where you're healthy, you're well, you know your own name. Thank Him for every good thing that comes into your life. But when the trials come, just like Job said, we've received all this good at God's hands. Shouldn't we also accept these troubles at His hand? It's all God, and it's all on purpose, and it's all for a reason. And if you know that, then you'll endure it, and that will have its perfect result, which is faith tried in the fire. That results in your justification, your imputed righteousness. And the saving of your soul. He knows what He's doing. Got it? Got it I could have said the last one minute and saved you the previous hour. <laughs> yes, sir? What is the purpose of the suffering of unbelievers? The purpose of the suffering of unbelievers? Yeah, is because they are sinners who are under the wrath and judgment of God. And the worst part is, it doesn't get better. But the purpose of, for us is that we become more faithful. Exactly. I think there's a couple outcomes. The outcome for them is that they do faint away, and it does drive them away from God. It does create that wall of partition between them and God. And they're God haters to begin with, and I think, to use a Pauline phrase, they have um, seared their own conscience. And I think that's the purpose of the suffering that the unbelievers follow. Now, you hear that from the atheists all the time. How can there be a good God if there's something? Yeah. Yeah. What I was talking about Wednesday night. Yeah, 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 I'm sorry I'm having a little trouble hearing. some
1: suffering sometimes causes them to come to God.
0: Yes, absolutely. Because God knows what he's doing. That's why I keep going back to that. If an unbeliever turns toward God because of the things they've suffered, God knows that. That's why he's doing it. If an unbeliever turns away from God, Sears his conscience and stays away. God knows that. He knows what he's doing. Or let's put it this way First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, I forget which, but God says that when the ultimate little horn, the Antichrist, comes on the planet, there's a really frightening phrase there that says God will send a strong delusion on the people still on the planet. He will send them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie so that they will be damned. Hmm. Uh, He knows what he's doing. So I would say the suffering for the unbelievers is just sealing their fate. That's the purpose that he raised Pharaoh. That's the purpose purpose that he raised Pharaoh. To demonstrate my power in you
1: and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Very good. God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens desires.
0: God has mercy and God hardens. It's
1: hard to make sense to me, but I'm not the one in charge.
0: And we're all happy for it. Anything else? We've apparently moved into the question phase, just rather naturally. Anything else? We're all good? Yes, sir. All right, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Bye.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the word and study the sovereign grace of God.